All right, guys, you got through Christmas. Congratulations. I'm so proud of you. Yep. Um, on Christmas Eve, I said, all right, Christmas is here, and now I say Christmas is gone. It is behind us. I know the trees will be taken down this week. Everybody's uh, ornaments will come down and all that kind of stuff, and we have to say goodbye to Christmas, and we're going to be saying hello to the new year, right? So um, let me just give you a couple. I'm going to take a second for a commercial. What's coming up in the new year at Grace Fellowship? First of all, every single year on the first Sunday of the year, uh, we revisit God's calling on our church. We talk about God's plan for our church, what he's doing here, what he's going to be doing in 2020, and we talk about vision a little bit. This year, we're expanding that and making that a two-week uh, process. So the first two weeks of January are going to be absolutely essential. So if you're somebody who's like sniffling and sneezing and all that kind of stuff, put on one of those paper masks and come to church anyway, okay? You don't want to miss those two Sundays. Um, and the second Sunday, which is the 12th, I think, um, on that second Sunday, give yourself a little extra time because... After each of the services, we're going to be having what we're calling a ministry fair out on the back patio, where all of our different core ministries of the church will have booths set up. You'll have a chance to go and find out a little bit about what's going on in that ministry, uh, how that ministry might be able to serve you or bless you, and how maybe you might be able to fit in and be a blessing to somebody through that ministry. So um, that's going to be happening on the 12th, so plan on sticking around for that after the service, whichever service that you attend. Um, and uh, then on the 19th of January, we begin a brand new sermon series in the book of James. So uh, if you want to get ready for that, now is a great time to start reading James in your quiet times at home. It's toward the back of your New Testament, right after the book of Hebrews. You find this little book of James, five chapters, but it is packed with the most practical how-to Christianity stuff you will find anywhere in the scripture. It is by far the most practical of every book of the scripture. And I'm just going to tell you now, and I probably shouldn't tell you this, but you're going to find out anyway. Uh, when you read the book of James, God always kicks you in the shins. So he, he is going to, I don't, pick your metaphor, poke you in the eye, slap you upside the head, whatever the deal is. God, in the book of James, will grab you by the lapels and get your attention. And you'll be thinking, oh my gosh, am I living the way that God's spirit calls me to live? And he is extremely practical about how we live, how we talk, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, what we do with our energy, all that kind of stuff. So the book of James is going to get us through the spring, and that's where we're going to be in 2020. So I just encourage you to be here. I'm excited about all that stuff, and I want you guys to be excited about it too. But we're not there yet. It's still 2019, and so we got Christmas behind us, no more Christmas sermons. We got the New Year in front of us, so we're going to save New Year's sermon for that. And that leaves us this in-between Sunday, also known as Youth Pastor Gets to Preach Day all about around the country, because usually senior pastors take off because we're exhausted after Christmas, and we go, hey, Youth Pastor, you should probably get a chance to preach. Wouldn't that be great? And youth pastors all around the country are preaching today, and you guys are stuck with me because I still think I'm a youth, and that's how you have to face deal with me. But I have to have a standalone sermon, and 
I thought, you know, what's on my heart? What do I think is on God's heart that he wants to get through to us as we sort of uh, close the chapter on 2019 and get ready to open a chapter called 2020 in our lives? And so um, we're going to be today in the Old Testament. If you brought a Bible with you, you're going to want to open to 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I'm going to give you a little bit of extra time to find it if you're not used to um, traipsing through your Old Testament. By the way, in the inside of your Bible, there's a table of contents, and that is a very useful tool. But find 1 Samuel chapter 30, and that's where we're going to be. But while you're looking for it, let me give you some context, okay? It's the story of a guy named David. We're all familiar with David, or many of us are at least. Uh, let me just kind of lay it out for you. It begins out in the wilderness on this little ranch way outside of any big town, outside of where anybody lives. There's this guy named Jesse, and Jesse has a ranch out there, and he also has a whole slew of sons. And one day, uh, there comes a knock at the door at Jesse's house, and he opens the door, and who is standing there except Samuel, the great prophet of Israel? And Samuel is by... Uh, far the most important guy in the country. He's the most famous guy in the country. He's the most significant guy in the country. Uh, he's the person everybody would dream of meeting one day, and he just shows up on Jesse's doorstep, and he says, hey, Jesse, I want to meet your sons. And so Jesse gathers his sons from all over the place and brings them and lines them up by age, and one by one, they shake Samuel's hand, and they get a chance to meet this celebrity, and it's a big deal, and one by one, he greets them and then sends them away, greets them and sends them away, greets them and sends them away, all the way down the line until he gets to the youngest, and he greets him and sends him away, and then he looks at Jesse, and he says, Isn't, don't you have any other sons? And he goes, well, I just have the youngest one. He's way out in the field with the sheep, because that's what he does. He's a shepherd, but um, he's not important, and Jesse goes, God sent me here to talk to one of your sons, and it's not any of these, so why don't you go get that one? So they go and get David, and David comes in, and he's like, I can't believe you guys didn't call me for this, right? But these are his older brothers, and they're like, shut up. And they, it's, it's right there in the, in the Hebrew. And, and <laughs> so David comes in, and he you know, bows down, and he gets to meet Samuel, the great prophet, and Samuel hugs him and basically puts his arms around him and whispers in his ear and says, David, you will be the next king of Israel. And he anoints him at that point to become the next king of Israel. See, Israel has a king, and it's a guy by the name of Saul, and he's a godless dude, and he has completely messed things up. And so God is changing um, tracks here, and he's going to put a godly man on the throne, and he's going to come out of this little boy named David. And then we don't see David again until there's a battle going on and David's brothers are there at the battle as Israel fights against the Philistines. On one side of the valley, Israel is camped out. On the other side, the Philistines. And you know the story, the great giant warrior Goliath comes out every day and shakes his fist at the people of God and he mocks God and he mocks Israel and he says, isn't there anybody who has the guts to fight me? And every day they shake in their boots and no one fights him. And David shows up literally on the battle line, too young to fight in the battle, but he's bringing lunch to his brothers. And he comes and he's passing out the ham sandwiches. They probably weren't ham sandwiches. He passes out the <laughs> peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to his brothers. <laughs> Pretty sure they weren't ham sandwiches. <clears throat> and he, 
He's passing out the sandwiches, and Goliath comes out and starts shouting and mocking God. And David is shocked because he's looking at all these warriors, and none of them is doing anything about this. And he goes, I don't get it. How come nobody's fighting him? And they're like, you see the size of this guy? None of us can defeat him. David goes, ha, I fought a lion and defeated him. I fought a bear and defeated him. And when I was protecting the sheep, I'll take this guy. And they're all so afraid that they let him go. And David goes out there with his sling and his stones. You know the story. And he whips the sling and he nails the guy right between the eyes and knocks him cold. And Goliath falls to the ground. And David goes and grabs Goliath's giant sword and lops off Goliath's giant head and lifts it up. And then the, the warriors on the Israeli side go bananas and they just storm and they just rout the Philistine army, right? We know that story. Well, when this happens, David becomes the hero in Israel. And all of the people are chanting his name and all the people are shouting and writing songs about him. And every time Saul comes into town and the people line the streets, they're, they're going, we want David, we want David. And Saul is just disgusted because he's so jealous of David. And at that point, Saul sets out to destroy David. And he begins looking for ways to kill him. And David has to run and hide in the wilderness because he's not king yet. Saul is still the king. And so he's waiting and while he's in the wilderness, years go by. He's sleeping in caves and under bushes and, and just trying to stay alive while this guy is searching for him all around the country. But little by little, there are men who are joining up with David. These are guys who are getting kicked out of Saul's army because they won't support Saul. The, and these guys are warriors. These guys are tough guys, and they're, they're basically outcasts. They're the guys who got in trouble. They're the guys who won't follow the rules. These are, picture a biker gang. That's basically who comes to join David, right? And there are, eventually there are 600 of them. And so now David is leading this band of merry men uh, who are warriors, who are itching for a fight, and he won't let them kill Saul because Saul is God's anointed. And he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And a few weeks go by, a few months go by, a few years go by, a decade goes by, and David is still running from Saul until finally he says, enough of this, I am out of here. And he takes his guys and he crosses the border into the land of the Philistines and he lives among the Philistines, the great enemies of God's people. And he lives among them and convinces them that he's had enough of Saul and he's decided to switch sides and he comes over as a mercenary and the king accepts him. And they allow him to go on these raids with his men, and they start raiding these um, enemies where they are both enemies of Israel and enemies of the Philistines. So these are like the Amalekites and the Monroviites and the, you know, Arcadites and people like that. And, 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 and they just start um, going in, and going into battle with these guys to prove themselves to the Philistine king, you can trust us, we're on your side. But never will they fight against the Jews. And so they come back and they're like, hey guys, hey king, guess what we did? We routed this little town in Judah. You'd be so proud of us. Only they never did. They just attacked the enemies of Israel. And they're building a reputation. And they're living in this town called Ziklag, which has become the city 
that these 600 men and their families live in, and it's in the land of the Philistines. And so uh, everybody, the king is beginning to trust them, but the generals still won't trust them. They remember this guy, David, who killed Goliath. This guy is their sworn enemy, and they're not going to trust him. And now they're about to go to war with Israel. And David is thinking, hey, this might be my opportunity. Maybe I could come in and I could attack the Philistines from the rear. And he has this whole plan. And, and basically the generals say, you guys can't come. We don't trust you. You're not coming into this battle. So you guys head home. And they send them home after they've been out on the battlefield for months and months in battle. They send them home. And so these 600 men start heading back to Ziklag, and that is where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now, I gave you enough time to find it, okay? <laughs> you didn't find it yet. Quit looking. Just go to sleep, and we'll wake you up when we're done, okay? Here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in, in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David said to the people who were with, uh, David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I want you to have a sense of what these guys are going through. So picture this. Have you ever been away from home for a long time? Maybe, maybe you went off to college as a freshman somewhere, and you're away from your family for the first time, and your heart just aches because you miss your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters and your friends. Uh, maybe you've been in the military. You went off to boot camp. You had a deployment. Maybe you saw action overseas. Maybe you had to... Um, be aboard ship for a tour and you're gone for months and months and months and maybe even years and you don't get to see your family. I, I, don't, I don't know if we could ever appreciate too much those men and women in the U.S. military who do that for us. It's an incredible price that they pay. Maybe some of you have been down that road and you know that. Maybe you've just been on a long trip somewhere. I, I went on a trip to Asia by myself years ago, and it was a ministry trip, and I spent a few weeks in Korea, and I spent a few weeks in uh, China, and I was just by myself, and uh, when I got to the end of my time in China, uh, I had one day where I was not teaching, where I had the opportunity to be a tourist, and so my last day in China, I, I went to a hotel and asked the concierge to put me on a bus, and he put me on a bus, and I went to the Great Wall, and I got a chance to see the Great Wall of China, and you get to, you get to climb right up on top of it and walk along the Great Wall. It's, it's really a spectacular thing, and there I was, just Beijing on this side and Mongolia on this side, standing on the Great Wall of China, 
and these merchants would come up to me. These were Mongolians who had come up from the Mongolian side, and they had all these little trinkets to sell. And they, they see a, a guy who looks like me in China, and I sort of stick out, right? And they come up to me, and they're like, hey, buy this, buy that, buy this, buy that. I'm like, no, no, I'm not buying anything. Don't have any money. Don't want to buy anything. Don't want to buy. They're like, look at these T-shirts. This is a great T-shirt. It has a picture of the wall. It says, I climbed the great wall. You should, you should buy this. It's only $6. So no, no, I don't want to buy it. How about $5? No. How about $4? How about $3? Finally, get these people away from me. I said, you don't even have my size. They go, yes, we do. What size? I said, 2XL. They went to their box. They pulled through. They found the shirt. They showed me the tag, 2XL. I said, fine, here's your three bucks. Leave me alone, right? I took the shirt, and then I realized, actually, this is a great thing because I do not have one clean shirt left. <laughs> and I have an 18-hour flight home. And so by the time I get home, I, you know, I need something to travel in. So I folded it nicely carried it with me, and I got up in the morning for my trip home to go to the airport, pulled out this nicely folded shirt, and began to put it on, and I found out at that point that the tag said 2XL, but the shirt was a medium. <laughs> now, let me just tell you, you have not seen sexy until you've seen me in a medium t-shirt. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. It was something to behold. You kind of put it on like this. You know, somebody stopped me in the airport for an autograph because they thought I was Winnie the Pooh. That really happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I wore that shirt for an 18-hour flight home, got on a bus from the airport, took the bus down into where my family picked me up. And you know what? I didn't mind a bit because I was going home. I was going to get to hug my kids. I was going to get to sleep in my own bed. I was going to get to kiss my wife. It was like, yes, that's what I was looking forward to. And I did not mind. Now, I think the guy sitting next to me on the plane probably minded a little bit, but I didn't mind at all. And and that's how it is when you are longing for home and you can't wait after a long trip to get home and see your people. These guys are on their way back from the battle. They come around the bend, and they say, that's our town. And as they move toward it, they see smoldering. Is that smoke? It is smoke. They begin to run. And as they get to the town, they find nothing left. A few little remnants of stone walls, smoldering. No families, no people everybody gone. And they realize that while they've been over there fighting, the Philistine army has been over here, the Amalekite army has been over here fighting against them and has taken everything while they've been gone. To say that they are devastated is the understatement of the year. They're fatigued, they're brokenhearted, things did not exactly work out as they had planned. And they're just feeling beaten down, and they're feeling discouraged, and they're feeling angry. How are you feeling? As we, as we come to the end of 2019, you look back on the year that is behind us, I know that some of us are feeling beaten down, 
and discouraged and hurt and maybe angry. I know that for some of us, this has not been an easy year. I know that some of our church family has been out of work this year and, and just trying to figure out how am I going to get by, how am I going to pay the bills, how am I trying to get the job that doesn't come. I know that a lot of you have dealt with serious illnesses, maybe yourself, maybe a loved one that is in the family and you feel like you've spent more time in the hospital than you've spent at home. Maybe some of you spent this Christmas as the first Christmas without someone in your family who's dear to you who's gone now. And you know what that's like to just experience that loss and it's fresh for you. Whether it's family problems or unmet goals or issues in your career, for some of us, 2019 was one we're happy to say goodbye to. Some of us are feeling a little overwhelmed and a little brokenhearted right about now. So what I want to say is that today, before we finally turn the page on the calendar, we get this little time out. We get a chance to step back, take a deep breath, and take stock. And I don't want us to waste this opportunity I think it's time that we ask ourselves an important question. So here's the question I want to toss out for us to chew on today. Where do I find my security? Where do I find my sense of self, my, my sense of safety, my sense of purpose? We can find it in a lot of places. Many of us find that in family. There's nothing like family to some of us. And, and we just know that as long as we have our family, everything's going to be okay. Um, and that's why some of us are struggling today, especially after Christmas. David and his men came home to find their families had been taken away from them. And it had to be a devastating experience. And some of us know exactly what that feels like. Undoubtedly, some of you know what it's like to be a child in the family that goes through a divorce. And there's nothing you can do about it. And your dad's going one direction, your mom's going another direction, and there's strife and there's fighting in the family, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's beyond your power. And your family, the only place you feel safe, the only place that you feel confident and secure is now being just shaken to the core, and there's nothing you can do about it. And some of you right now, when I talk about that, feelings rush back to your heart, and you remember being 5, 7, 10, 12 years old and watching this happen. Some of you have been through divorce yourself as an adult. And, and while I've met numerous people who said, I sure am glad I'm no longer married to that person, I've never met anybody who said, I sure am glad I went through a divorce. It's awful. And, and it shakes your world. These guys lost their whole family. Another place some of us find our security is in our friends because there's nothing like the... Um, the way you feel when you're accepted by people. People who have a choice, like your family's stuck with you, right? But, but your friends, people who choose to love you, people who choose to be in your corner, people you can lean on. And 
people who find you worthy to be called a friend, and you're validated by that. And when your friends turn against you, you feel stabbed in the back by people who loved you or said they loved you, people you trusted. That's a terrible, terrible feeling, and it rocks your world. And you can lose your sense of security. So other people put their, their sense of trust, they get their sense of security from their possessions. They're like, well, I may not have great friendships, I, I, but I got plenty of money. Ebenezer Scrooge, right? I, I don't need all these people. I've got enough. I'll take care of myself. And, and there's a lot of people who just put their trust in the fact that nobody can really take all this stuff from me. You may be thinking, well, at least I don't have that problem. <laughs> at least I don't have to, have to worry about putting my trust in riches. I don't have riches. Well, guess what? We've said this before, but if you have a roof over your head, you got a car in the garage, you got some food in a refrigerator somewhere, you're richer than 98% of the people who've ever walked the face of the earth. And, and I think we don't realize how much trust we put in material things. Because, uh, you know, there's, the streets are filled with homeless people in Southern California. And many of those people once felt secure in a home, once felt secure in a job, once felt secure in relationships, and now somehow, whatever the reasons were, and there's different reason in every case, whatever the reasons for, they don't have that. And if you've been out of work for a long period of time, or you've ever, God forbid, had to spend a night in a car or on a park bench, then maybe you know something about what that's like. But the truth of the matter is, I don't care how many possessions you have, it can all go away tomorrow. So some of us find our sense of self, our sense of security in our position, in our title, like I am somebody, right? I'm the boss at work. I'm the CEO. I'm the mom in this family. I'm the pastor of this church. I'm the whatever, fill in the blank. And, and we take our title and our position, and, and in our position, we find a sense of security. And I want to remind you that that too can be taken away. I think about uh, the, the promising young law student who's just finishing up his last year of law school. He's already got a job offer from one of the big firms, and they're waiting to pay him a ton of money, and all he has to do is pass the bar exam, but he doesn't pass the bar exam. For all these years of college, all these years of grad school, he takes it a second time and he doesn't pass the bar exam the second time or the third time. And suddenly he looks and goes, oh my God, I thought I knew who I was. I'm a lawyer, but I'm no longer that. Who am I? Or the truck driver who gets one too many tickets and loses his license. Or the wife whose husband dies or leaves her. Or the executive who's been living for retirement so that when he retires, he can join the country club and play golf every day. And after about two weeks of playing golf every day, he says, this is not living. I want to go back to work. But he doesn't have a place back at work. And he no longer knows who he is. See, if you confuse what you do with who you are, it's just a matter of time before you face an identity crisis. David and his men were riding high. Victory after victory after victory. Until all of a sudden, 
They lost their sense of security. And now they stand there, these men, picture these men, these, these great mighty warriors with their weapons and their scars, and they're weeping uncontrollably. They're leaning against what's left of the walls they had built their homes out of. And as they feel the stone in their hand, they think, I'm going to take this stone. We should kill David. He's the one that got us into this mess. And if you're David, not only have you lost your family, but, but you've lost your possessions. You've lost all these friends who are now turning against you, and they're about to take away your position as their leader. And so what do you do if you're David? Look at verse 6. The very last sentence in verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. All this terrible stuff is happening. They lost their families. They lost their friends. They lost their possessions, their position. Everything has fallen apart in a moment. And David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. I know it's a Sunday school answer. I know it's absolutely cliche. I know it's what you expect to hear when you come to church. That's not even surprising. After all, David is a Bible hero. This is what Bible heroes do, right? They turn to God. What else would he do? I have to be honest, though. When I think about my life, I think about some of these moments I've fallen in a hole. I didn't always turn to God first. I I've... I've got a track record of turning to all those other things where I found my security. Sometimes I'll turn anywhere until all of those resources fail me, and then when everything has failed me, maybe then I'll cry out to God. Don't get me wrong. These things I listed, and I could have listed other things, these things I listed, family, friends, possessions, position, these are good things. There's nothing wrong with these things. We should enjoy these things. These things should be a blessing to our life. I'm not saying that these are not good things, but if those things are the things that define us, if those things are our source of security, then we're in real danger because those things can be taken away from us in the blink of an eye when we least expect it. When David hit rock, rock bottom and his life was a mess, he turned to God because he's a Bible hero, and that's what Bible heroes do. But you might be surprised to know that even David, the great spiritual giant that he was, was not so different from you and me. Leave your finger in chapter 30 and just turn a couple pages back to chapter 27. It's what, really where all this begins. Chapter 27, 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day at the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gash. David 
came to the point after 10 years of running from Saul, after 10 years of waiting for the promise of God to come true in his life, after 10 years of waiting to actually be crowned the king of Israel and having no indication it was ever going to happen, after 10 years of being on the run, he reached the end of his rope and he said, I am sick of this. This is never going to happen. I got to get out of here. And he left and went to the land of the Philistines. That's how this whole thing started. Never mind that God had made him a promise. Never mind that he had already been anointed king. He was tired. He was frustrated. He was discouraged. And look who he turned to. Chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul, etc., etc. Who did David turn to? He turned to himself. He said, I need some counsel. Where am I going to get counsel? I know. I'll ask me. And he, he, he thought to himself, and before you laugh and think, what a stupid guy, you've had a million of these dialogues in your head, haven't you? Where, where you and yourself sit down and have a conversation, and you go, oh my gosh, things are terrible, and yourself says, well, you should get out of here, and you should run. You go, you know, that's a good idea. I should ask you more often, and yourself says, you're right. Why don't you ever listen to me? And you go, I'm listening to you this time, and you and yourself get up, and you go, right? We've all done that. That's what David did. He took counsel with himself. He searched his own heart for the answers. When things got rough, he didn't turn to God. He listened to his heart. Now listen, I know it's a popular sentiment to follow your heart, but the Bible says it's a stupid thing to do. Jeremiah 79, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. That's what the Bible says about our hearts. You're really going to trust your heart when you hit rock bottom? You're really going to trust your wisdom? You're really going to trust yourself? The Word of God says, listen, that's not where you turn. When, you, when you've reached the end of your rope, you don't turn inward. This is a gigantic difference between Christianity and a Christian worldview compared to Eastern mysticism and most of the Eastern religions that teach you to look inside and you will find truth. There's no truth inside of a person who's depraved. The Bible says we got to turn to God. And so when the going gets tough, you're not going to find the answers within. David trusted in his heart to guide him. And that's what put him in this position in the first place. Listen, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Your feelings, your emotions are a wonderful thing. They're a gift from God. If you're a person who tends to be emotional, who tends to feel things deeply, don't see that as a curse. It's a blessing. God has given it to you as a blessing. Your feelings, your emotions are good things. It's the way you experience life to the fullest, right? People whose hearts harden up and they refuse to feel, they shrivel up and die. That's not how God created us to be human. Feelings are a good thing, okay? Your heart is... It's a wonderful gift that God has given you. So here's the thing you have to know about feelings. Feelings make wonderful servants but terrible masters. They're there to serve us. They're not there to lead us. And, And David trusted his heart. 
more than he trusted his God. People walk out on their families because they let their feelings be their masters. People give in to temptations because they let their feelings be their masters. People turn to drugs, to alcohol, to suicide because they let their feelings be their masters. David had been down that road before. In chapter 27, he trusted his heart and it led him into the worst period of his life he had ever faced. He thought it was bad in the 10 years that he was running from Saul. It was nothing compared to his, four, uh, to his time that he spent with the Philistines. There's four chapters. Chapter 27, 28, 29, 30. He's living with the Philistines. He doesn't even look like the David we know. We never see him praying. He's not writing any psalms. We never hear him praising God. We never hearing, hear him uh, going after God's wishes. As far as you could tell, if you only knew David from the years that he was among the Philistines, you'd just think he was one of the Philistines. It was the worst time of his life. And now look where he is. He's lost any security that was offered by family, friends, possessions, position. And he has nowhere else to turn. So finally, he turns to God. Back in chapter 30, if we pick it up in verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them and you will surely rescue all. Now let me explain this because this is bizarre. This is nothing like anything we've ever experienced. There's this priest, Abiathar, and Abiathar has this special priestly vest called an ephod. And in Israel at this time, the ephod is to be worn by the priest or the prophet. And at the time that he's wearing it, God speaks through him. And so it's a way to find out God's will. And it's bizarre to us. It seems very strange to us. I don't know how it worked. Um, it's sort of like these other passages where you see they cast lots and God speaks to them through the casting of lots or the rolling of dice, if you will. And, and now this, this ephod has these two rocks, like one's one color and the other's another color. And to me, it looks like a magic eight ball. You just shake it up and see what it tells you. But God spoke to the priest that way. And so using the ephod, David David uh, inquires of God, should we go after this band of, of um, villains who have taken our families? Now, I don't know how that strikes you that he asks God that question. To me, it seems utterly ridiculous. This is the stupidest question I've ever heard. We're, we're a bunch of warriors. Our families have been taken from us. They burned down our city and we're standing here weeping in the ashes. Should we go after them? Well, duh. How smart do you have to be to figure this out, right? And, and if you're David, it's even more obvious. Should I stay here in the ashes where these guys are trying to kill me? Or should we head off and go rescue our families if we can? It, it's not a hard question. And that's why I'm pointing it out. The fact that David asks the question of God illustrates a transforming moment in David's life. A question that should be so obvious. A question that he already thinks he knows the answer to. Guess what? 
He did that back in chapter 27. He thought he knew the answer, and so he made the decision on his own apart from God. Now he's seeking God. Now, everything that he put his trust in has failed him. He is without any comfort from his possessions, his friends, his position, any of those things. And his family is gone. And now, he asks the most obvious question of God. And God, responding to his humility, gives him the answer. Yes, go after them. And surely, you will save them. For some of us, it's time to look back on a 2019 where we have done things our own way. And it's time to turn the page to 2020 and find our sense of security, our sense of value, our sense of self, our sense of purpose, not so much in what we're doing, but in who we're doing it with and who we're doing it for. The end of the year is a great time to take stock. But instead of making New Year's resolutions about weight loss and exercise and smoking and drinking and all that kind of stuff, maybe it's time to make a more fundamental shift, to take advantage of this little break in time, this little, this little time out where we get to take a deep breath and take stock. And maybe it's time during this time at the end of the year to maybe change our perspective to where I don't do what seems best to me anymore but I find my sense of security in God alone. Isn't it time to realign your values with God's values? It's a great time to ask him to be the one who makes your plans and then lean on him for the strength and the courage to follow those plans. What if your 2020 was prioritized by the things that God has said are most important to him? rather than the things that you have let become most important to you? What if instead of defining success in terms of family, friends, possession, position, you define success the way the Bible defines success, being pleasing to God? With that definition of success, the only one who can get in your way is you. We don't have time to read the rest of this story. Maybe you can read it in your quiet times this week. But spoiler alert, let me just tell you what happens. Um, with God at the helm, David and these men ride off in search of this band of villains that took their families. They chase them down. They wipe them out. They get back all of their wives and children without one of them being harmed. And they take so many spoils from this army that they have attacked that they become so wealthy that they can't even figure out how to divvy up all the wealth. And then David turns around and leads these men back across the border into Israel where David is crowned king and where he sits on the throne and rules by the rule of God in his life. Everything changed that day. You say, well, what was the big thing in David's life? Was it the day that Jesse came to his house? Yeah, that was probably really important. It's probably a really important day, that day he killed Goliath, right? But, but I think this is the untold story of David's life. It's that day when David stops looking within, stops doing things his own way, stops finding his security in things that don't last, and finds instead his security in God. And instead he turns the, the driving privileges over to God. 
And he says, I'm going to go where you take me. Now, did he do it perfectly? No, we know about the Bathsheba incident and all that stuff. He was not perfect. He didn't become a perfect person at this point. But this is the point where following God became the mark of his life. And from this point forward, God calls him a man after my own heart and honors him so much that he brings the Messiah out of the line of David. As you move into 2020, I can promise you that God has some amazing things planned for your life. I promise you he does. He's always faithful to do what he sets out to do in the lives of those who will trust him. So the only question left as we close the old year and ring in the new year is this. Am I going to be one of those people who puts my trust in God? Or am I going to continue to find my security in the things of this world that cannot last? Am I going to experience the blessing of walking with God? Or am I going to roll the dice, take my chances, and put my faith in something else? That'll be the difference between whether your 2020 looks a lot like your 2019 or not. That'll be the difference in whether you can look back and say, you know, there seems to have been a turning point in my life where God went from being just sort of some, someone I was familiar with, someone that I cared about and someone I had a relationship with, to someone who is now the King of kings and Lord of lords in my life. And I got to experience the incredible blessing of walking with him in obedience and seeing him do what only he can do and only he will do in the lives of those who trust him. In 2020, will your life be marked as a life of those who trust him? Let's pray together. God, we want so much to trust you more. I feel today like the, the man whose son you were going to heal, who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, perhaps every one of us would have to admit that our trust in you runs short sometimes. That sometimes we value other things more than we value you. That sometimes we turn to our own hearts for guidance rather than turning to your word. That sometimes we find our sense of security, our definition of self in things that will not last. And so God, we come to you as those desperately in need of transformation. Somehow you did something in David's heart. Won't you do that in our hearts too? that our lives too might be marked as those who are men and women after God's own heart. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.